The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week we look at why Boris Johnson is getting so excited about the COP26 summit in Glasgow. Plus, China's encroachment into British infrastructure continues apace, but at what cost to our national security? And finally, we discuss why the British are so bad at dealing with grief. First up, Boris has high hopes for his November COP26 summit. He sees it as a chance for Britain to present itself as a green superpower, which can lead the way on environmental issues. But what price will British voters accept for an ambitious agenda of costly green initiatives? Katie Balls has written our cover story this week and she joins me now alongside Rachel Wolfe, former policy advisor to Boris Johnson and co-author of the Conservative Party's election manifesto in 2019. Katie, in your piece you outline what you refer to as an eco-jamboree. How are the plans shaping up? I think on the surface, a 12-day negotiation, you know, over 100 nations coming together and 12 days of quite techy talks about the Climate Change Action Plan. It doesn't really scream crowd-pleaser. But I think ultimately COP26 has seen as an increasing importance to this government because it sets out how Boris Johnson, A, wants to do his foreign policy. We saw in the integrated review how attacking climate change and protecting biodiversity is uh, you know, the key, the number one international aim foreign policy and secondly also his domestic agenda uh, I think there are many including the Prime Minister and uh, those around him who think that after a bruising few years in politics yes the pandemic but also Brexit the environmental agenda so the wider green agenda is a way to in their view unite the country and have and move to a post-pandemic policy setting. Rachel, you've got lots of experience having worked for Boris. What, what factors do you think have affected the Prime Minister's thinking over the years as his position on climate change has evolved, shall we say? I mean, I think Katie has identified the two main drivers on this, which is that it's a massive uh, sort of international opportunity. Obviously, Biden is himself pushing the US to become much more green. It's a way of demonstrating a sort of post-Brexit Britain and its soft leadership on the world stage and indeed potentially some of its harder leadership if it manages to negotiate COP. So it's incredibly important for that reason. And it is an area which does get more and more general public support. That's one of the big shifts over the last decade, although we might go into some of the nuances of that. But, you know, there is very, very little climate scepticism now in in the public and therefore it's, it's something that's supported and is relatively easy. My sense is that conservative environmentalism tends to come from a very conservative place. You know, I think it was Michael Gove who started to put a real voice behind this, that the idea is you leave the country or indeed the world in a better place 
for your children, grandchildren, and so forth, then, then you inherited it. And therefore there's been a huge move and you see this, there's a much more kind of conservative, pragmatic brand of environmentalism that imbues Westminster at least than there used to be, which has made people much more enthusiastic about it. It's interesting you say about the general support because in Katie's piece, she also points out that once you get into the actual polling, when people find out how much all of this is gonna cost, there's sort of less support. Katie, I mean, can you tell us a bit more about that aspect of it? Yeah, I think if we, if we see COP26 as the big, almost shiny event, perhaps Olympic event, depending on who you speak to, um, <laughs> to garner enthusiasm, it's part of a, a wider green agenda. And we know the government had their net zero target 2050. And I think as Rachel touches on, it definitely does feel there's been a sea change in recent years where there is a lot of enthusiasm for the green agenda. Even the, the Theresa May days, I remember Tory MPs went to Downing Street and they were given a presentation on how the party could win on green because no party really led on that yet in terms of the major parties. And they all started tweeting en masse to David Attenborough, Blue Planet, every night on Twitter um, with various graphics. And that was seen as a big vote winner. So I think that there is lots of polling that shows widespread enthusiasm. I think particularly geographically, people have said that that enthusiasm stays pretty level, whether you're in a village, a town or or a city. And this is often because people say, oh, well, can you really go green and keep the red wall? But where I think that question actually leads to an interesting point is... Yes, there's lots of enthusiasm, but as soon as you go into these polls and you say that, for example, it's a recent interesting YouGov Times poll and also a study with Public First, and as soon as you say to people, well, what does net zero mean? That's that's not well known. And then you, you start polling saying, well, um, how do you feel about the government's plans to ban gas boilers in new new homes, you know, uh, for in the 2030s. And that doesn't poll very well. I think that's just just over a third, around a third of voters support that. And lots of those people won't even be affected by it. And I think particularly on focus groups, when it comes to the, the plan to stop selling uh, petrol cars, diesel cars, that particularly gets scepticism in red wall seats because people will say, look, I, I want to do this green stuff, but if ultimately it's going to affect my monthly bills, if you expect me to get an electric car, which is still very expensive, then I, then I start to have an issue with it. Now, I think Boris Johnson's version of greenery is one where technology is going to ride to the rescue. But the issue here is a lot of these policies are not that far away. And I'm not sure if the tech is going to come as fast. Rachel, I'll let you respond to that. I'll talk about this a bit more and I can bore about this forever. So I'll try and be concise. So yeah, there are two different things going on here. The first is people support environmental policies, but they know very little about them. So not only do most people, you know, not necessarily support banning gas boilers, a very high percentage of people would have no idea that their gas boiler contributed to climate change in the first place. Often when you go into these focus groups, there's a lot of confusion about climate change versus plastics versus air quality and all these kind of different environmental things for understandable reasons. I mean, most people in Westminster, frankly, don't know a vast amount about it. Why should most people going about their lives? So so there's very low knowledge. It's starting to increase, but there is low knowledge. The second is there need to be viable alternatives. So when you do talk to people about, say, electric vehicles, their response is, It's way too expensive. Where the hell am I going to get a charging point from? I have to drive all the time for work. So so how exactly am I supposed to do this? It's It's just ludicrous. It's not plausible. And there's still quite a lot of policy that needs to happen if they want to make this plausible for most people across heat and cars and various other things. I think the third point, which is what Katie was also talking about, is that 
if you didn't have a 2050 deadline, right, if you didn't have a time by which you had to sort this, it would be wholly reasonable to say, we are going to just drive this through with technology, because in the end, I would agree, right, like the way in which you make this change is through invention. But we do have a timeline. And therefore, we have to shift behavior as well. And we haven't yet had the conversation with people about what that behavior shift would be. The only thing I would say on the slightly more optimistic side is I actually think quite a lot of those policies are possible. I mean, some of them are very expensive and they require a lot of will and delivery, but but there is a roadmap. It's just not been completely fleshed out yet. It certainly wasn't in the budget. And at least my assumption is there's going to be a lot of domestic policy announced over the summer and the autumn in preparation for COP and this change, or it's just not feasible and it's not credible. Rachel, what do you make of this point that Katie says in her piece that Boris is doing a lot of this to try and win back Remainer voters and possibly kind of swing Labour voters who might not have voted for him last time? I suppose I instinctively see environmental policy for the Conservative Party as important in its own right. Personally, I think this matters in its own right, but also as a kind of hygiene check more than a vote winner. I mean, it it doesn't seem to be terribly plausible going into the next election that Labour is going to be weaker on environmental policy than the Conservatives, right? It it seems to be very implausible that people are going to look between the two and go, oh no, the Conservatives are promising way more on the environment than Labour. I'm just trying to imagine a platform where that's true. It seems implausible. What does seem possible, though, is that the Conservatives are shown to be serious about that, about it, and that is good enough for people to then pay attention to other things. The only caution I would have is COVID is obviously a bit of a game changer, as it is on everything. And it means that the nation's finances and people's own finances and their financial position is going to be very vulnerable potentially in the next few years. And what I think we don't know yet is how more middle class, more affluent people are also going to think about the cost of some of these policies when they might be starting to get much more worried about their own jobs. I think, again, like I'm, I'm actually on the relatively pragmatically optimistic side. I think there's a way through. I think there are lots of policies from sensible pricing and the right kinds of subsidies and the right kind of shifts that, that you can announce. But it's a big lift and you have to be very serious about it and it needs to get announced quite soon. Katie, just finally, you talk in your piece about this sort of nostalgia that Boris has for the 2012 Olympics and that and that period of time. Do you think that the, the fact that he is feeling quite nostalgic about that suggests that he's perhaps found the last? Well, obviously, the last year has been hard. But do you think do you think he's kind of really looking for something to kind of get him get him going again? I think what's interesting talking to people about COP26 is. From various places, this Olympic comparison coming. <laughs> Some of the ideas being discussed. I mean, I think they're talking about getting a mascot. That's something civil servants are looking into. Uh, there's some, you know, saying, well, what could we learn from the uh, the torture, you know, in the Olympic 2012? So it does feel as though, I think that it's fair to say that Boris Johnson ultimately enjoyed his time in politics when there was a generally happy atmosphere. And you remember when he was that politician on the zip wire and everyone said, this is a disaster. He's stuck on the zip wire and it's had a, it, it boosts his popularity. And I think the Boris Johnson that became known for ultimately leading the charge for the UK to leave the EU, stopped being associated with that. And I think it's been documented by lots of people quite close to him that he struggled with that bit. I think on whether he's now placing all his hopes in COP26 to bring back the mayoral days, it's probably a little bit of a stretch. But I do think 
that there is a sense uh, from the Prime Minister and his close supporters that they believe the climate change agenda, the environmental agenda is a unifier and is going to push aside some of that. And also, I think you've got to bear it in mind uh, if you just push back a few months. There has been a personnel change in number 10. Vote leave forces are no longer there. Dominic Cummings is not there. He has some new aides. He has Dan Rosenfield, his chief of staff. And as I say in the piece, has been talking about uh, Chris Martin in relation to COP26. Um, and you also have, you know, and I think there is a bit of a reset of his premiership going on. Part of it's just tone, but I think there is a movement away from this more fighty, confrontational approach to politics, which was what we saw during Leave when really to to be fair, the Prime Minister felt he had to fight to get Brexit delivered. And I think what people looking at what happened under May would say he did have to fight to now a softer, less combative approach, which is one more uh, one nation conservative. And I think this is part of that. It sounds as if Boris is effectively trying to kind of heal, heal the wounds of Brexit with this kind of all these green policies. Do, do you think the country can come together over over climate change? I mean, I do sort of feel that right now everyone wants a summer and autumn of fun, right? Like we we all want some joy right now and some things we can all celebrate together. I, I suspect instinctively people will think of that more as street parties than a massive climate conference in, in Glasgow. But, but if anyone can create joy from it, it's probably this prime minister. I think the one other thing that we haven't discussed, and, and this, is, this has to be surely one of the great dangers of COP is that it doesn't happen at all. Other countries are not doing so well with their vaccinations. Case rates are going up in all sorts of places. We don't know what's going to happen with waves. Katie will know much more about this than me. But if you were looking to make mischief as a Scotland that quite felt like going in independent, making COP difficult might be a way that you do it. So that seems to me the great danger of of seeing this as a festive occasion more than anything else. Yes, I think there is a chance. You have uh, some pushing on the UN side to either make the conference uh, in part remote or to delay it, uh, to make it a virtual event, which number 10 is fighting very hard because ultimately you're not going to have this impact in any of their aims of it if, if it is all over Zoom or it's going to be less impact. There is a risk on the Scotland side. And I think why some of the plans being discussed right now, and nothing's completely confirmed, but some of the plans are making civil servants nervous because they think it's perhaps politicising the event too much. When you could have a situation when we get to November when the SNP are potentially a majority and are pushing for an independence referendum and and I think if then if you go in a union jack heavy Boris fest in Glasgow we can all see potential problems with that. Thank you Katie and Rachel. Next up Britain has welcomed billions of pounds worth of tech investment from China over the past decade a trend the government is keen to encourage further post-Brexit and Covid. But to what extent will newly relaxed regulations on foreign investment increase China's influence in Britain? To discuss where this all might be leading, our writer Ian Williams is joined by Bruno Mackay, former Portuguese politician and author of Dawn of Eurasia, On the Trail of the New World Order, and Belt and Road, A Chinese World Order. Ian, can you start by explaining to listeners what effect this decision to water down the foreign investment rules might have on our national security when it comes to China? Well, there's a a proposed new law, which is called the National Security and Investment Law, which supposedly scrutinises more closely inward investment. Uh, No particular country is named, but it's understood that this primarily has China in mind. Um, There's a real concern that China has been 
picking off particularly technological companies, companies which are of strategic interest. And these investments have not really been subject to any scrutiny, well, really any scrutiny at all. As I mentioned in the piece, that, that there has been a sense of the due diligence as too frequently entailed counting the number of zeros on the cheque. And the idea was that takeovers or investments would be subject to greater scrutiny. And the, the, the level at which that scrutiny was triggered was supposed to be 15%, but it's now been raised to 25% after a lot of lobbying by the Confederation of British Industry and others who are worried about the state at which British companies will emerge from the COVID-19 epidemic and don't want to put off investors. The danger is, though, you move to the other extreme that we saw after 2008, where companies are in such a bad way and China is so eager to snap them up. And don't forget, a lot of these investments are not commercially based, they're strategically chosen by state-backed companies, that this the British industry, British technology emerges uh, in a position where they don't have the protection that this, this bill was designed to give them. Bruno, in Ian's piece, he talks a lot about the various tech companies, Chinese tech companies who have a strong foothold in, in the UK. What, what do you make of Britain's reliance on Chinese tech? Well, it's happening a little bit all over the place. The US is moving very fast towards what you call a strategy of decoupling. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the EU's strategy. And uh, as far as the UK is concerned, I think there's still a lot of hesitancy uh, between these two extremes, whether to continue to do business with China, even if there are disagreements on human rights and political issues, but business as normal, which is basically the EU's approach, I think, or whether the UK is going to align with the US in, in, in a more confrontational approach. So I see Ian's piece as, in a way, entering this debate, which is going to be very interesting, very intense and in a way more open-ended than the debate in either the EU or the US. In some of the tech that you talk about that we have in the UK is actually banned in America. I mean, should that be concerning for us? I think it should be very concerning. I mean, take the, the so-called smart cities technology. We've seen very little scrutiny of Hikvision, for instance, in this country, which is the world's biggest supplier of surveillance cameras and much more because these cameras are linked to very scary artificial intelligence, facial recognition, gait recognition, emotional recognition. And there are an estimated 1.3 million of them in use in Britain in by local councils, by hospitals. And there's been very little scrutiny. We've seen Huawei, for instance, subject to scrutiny, but companies like Hikvision there's been very, very little oversight. And there, there, there are issues and concerns here on several levels, ranging from the technology itself through to the security of the data which is collected. And do we have any sense whether the data that is being collected could be being kind of monitored by Chinese counterparts? Or is, it, is that a kind of far-fetched idea at this point? Well, they assure us they aren't. But the answer is we don't know because Chinese companies, and it doesn't really matter whether they're nominally private, they're still subject to laws in China and the reality of Communist Party power, which means that they can't say no if they're required to cooperate on national security, which in China, of course, is defined in such a broad way that it can include almost anything. 
this is an interesting point because it's one that Ian makes in his piece, Bruno, that you know, Chinese, lots of Chinese tech companies say that they're private and commercial, but actually, as Ian says, that doesn't really exist in China. Is that is that something that we just don't really understand in the UK? We, we sort of do think that everything's either private or public. They're private companies, but they have a representation of the party that operates inside the company itself. There's an ideological office. There is staff by the Communist Party. Uh, and obviously there's a duty of loyalty and in many cases the top management is a member of the communist party that's besides the you know what you would expect that under uh, if the question becomes of national security that these companies will not obviously be able to say no and no one takes seriously the the idea that they will they are private companies and they're very interested in making money obviously uh, and it's not all political uh, there's a lot of money making going on there in competition between them by the way uh, i mean other cell phone providers in china have been taking advantage of huawei's predicament uh, in the last two years uh, but when it comes to matters that are deeply connected to china's plans geopolitical plans uh, plans of national rejuvenation uh, in that case, I don't think anyone can expect the companies to um, be able to say no. You know, we have doubts about the way that Google is able to say no uh, if it's a matter of, of counterterrorism. But obviously here the question doesn't even uh, need to be raised that they don't have that ability. And Bruno mentioned earlier how the Americans are starting to look at kind of decoupling themselves from this technology. Is that something that we're looking to do here? Yes, but far more slowly. I think, as Bruno suggested, that the, the British policy on China has been extremely muddled. If one can be identified at all over recent years, it's really been driven by a combination of naivety and greed. And the debate in this country is still some way behind what we're seeing in the United States and even in parts of, of mainland Europe. I think that there is a realisation that there's a, a profound danger of becoming too dependent upon Chinese money, upon Chinese technology. But the debate in this country, as I say, is, is really at a far earlier stage than it is in the United States. And Bruno, just going back to your earlier point about the EU, is it, is it going to be harder for Britain to wean itself off some of this tech if... if you know, lots of EU countries are also using it. Right. Um, not only that, not only questions of access, interoperability and so on, which are important, but also a sense which I think is going to be rather acute in the UK, that you're going to miss on great business opportunities that the EU is going to scoop up. Uh, it's going to be a powerful argument. Uh, but uh, the UK's policy is very difficult to, to follow and interpret for the time being. Boris Johnson said recently, I think a couple of weeks ago, that he wants to deepen economic relations with China and he wants to sign a free trade agreement, which, by the way, the EU is not really interested in signing a free trade agreement. It's interested in signing an investment agreement. So, <laughs> difficult for me to interrupt, but I spent quite a bit of time trying to do so. I think we'll have to wait a few months, perhaps a few years. And, of course, it's shifted a lot because I remember when I was in government, in the Portuguese government, went to the EU councils and the UK government under David Cameron was the government that was pushing for closer economic ties to China more than anyone else in the EU at the time. And do you think that was a mistake at the time? I think it was a huge mistake. I think that that policy of being China's best friend in the West, the golden era, the Cameron-Osborne period, will go down in history as being one of the worst policy decisions on both an economic and a political level in, in, in recent years. I think that it threw away, really, any oversight, any scrutiny 
and threw the door wide open. And as as Bruno was saying, to the extent that there was almost zero oversight of, of the investments that were coming in. Thank you, Ian and Bruno. And if you'd like to keep up with all things China, do check out our Chinese Whispers podcast presented by Cindy Yu. You can find it on the Best of the Spectator channel. And finally, in a week where the royals have been officially mourning the passing of the Duke of Edinburgh and a year in which countless families have lost loved ones to COVID, has the pandemic brought about a new understanding of grief? Fiona Mountford asked whether the terrible losses sustained by so many recently will shift the way we perceive and process the emotional chaos of grief. Joining her is the comedian, actress and presenter of Griefcast, Carrie Lloyd. Fiona, in this week's magazine, you, you asked whether we've collectively learned anything about grieving in the past year. What would be your assessment of how the British cope with grief? Well, I think, Lara, unfortunately, we're really not very good at it. When my father died extremely suddenly six years ago, I, I came up against the hard fact of general British inability to deal with grief in a kind and meaningful way. And when I'm feeling charitable, I think we all have a natural human urge to want to fix things. We want to solve problems. And death remains the ultimate unfixable thing. If someone's very upset or crying in front of us, what we really want is for them to tell us they're desperate for a bacon sandwich or for someone to go and pick their prescription up from a pharmacy so we can go and do that and they'll be happy and then the problem is solved. But death is not a solvable thing. And I think we don't know what to say and what people who've suffered grief have would tell anyone is it's better to say I'm so sorry I don't know what to say but acknowledge it don't leave it hanging there as this terrible 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 elephant in the room. Carrie do you host the podcast Griefcast what have been your observations about how the British deal with grief? Yeah, I think as Fiona said, we're not particularly good at it. I mean, I, I have to say, having done um, grief cast episodes in other countries, it's not just us. <laughs> okay, that's I, 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 Yeah, I do think we sometimes worry it's us. And actually, I think a, a lot of countries struggle to talk about death. And I have to say, Ireland, brilliant. They're brilliant. They're really good at talking about it. We are much worse. And I do think, as Fiona said, people are so afraid of being wrong. That's the key to understand. We really don't like being wrong or doing the wrong thing in, in society, in conversation. And so what that leads to is I'd rather say nothing than do something and upset them or be wrong. So I think we just need to get better at being at failing, at just not being very good sometimes. And as Fiona's saying, admitting we don't know what to say. I think a lot of people don't even want to admit, oh, I don't know what to do. So instead they think, well, I'll just say nothing <laughs> because that, that way somehow it's better. Whereas if you just start from the point of, I'm God, I'm so sorry, that sounds awful. I don't know what to say to you I, but if I can say something please let me know like it's absolutely fine not to know what is the correct thing to do but the correct exactly Carrie's exactly I agree exactly with what Carrie had said the it's fine to not know what the correct thing is to do but what the correct thing is not is to do nothing yes and yeah, I yeah. always think if you if you came you saw an acquaint or you saw somebody and they had their leg in a plaster cast or they obviously had a very pregnant tummy it would be inconceivable not to say I'm so sorry about your leg hurrah, you're about to have a baby. But if we see somebody we, we, who we know has suffered a bereavement, how, how is it all right not to acknowledge that? I, a, fr a friend of mine tells a terrible story. She, she lost a very close family member and someone she knew well saw her sort of up the street and crossed to the other side of the street to avoid having to talk to her. I mean, that is just bad human behaviour. I've heard that so much, the crossing of the road, and I find it really 
yeah really bizarre that that would be where your brain goes to of like oh the what would be worse what's the worst thing that could happen is talking to this person and having an awkward conversation feeling uncomfortable or them seeing me cross the road and and ignoring them when they're in pain and I do find it strange that a lot of people who've experienced grief have that story of the person who crossed the road when actually why is it so awful to be uncomfortable in a conversation to go up to someone and say oh I I heard the news I'm so sorry I don't quite know what to say and then have them be upset and then you just have to experience an awkwardness that's all it is it's just but I think it it. takes it takes um, we as a as a a society we like very much like to scoff at this idea of emotional literacy but it's it's all important it all it all boils down to our emotional literacy and it's about how I think to use the language of therapy, how easily we sit in maybe our our past experience of grief, our own ability to express our emotions and so on. And if we're awkward about that, then we're just completely, we're not going to be any help in expressing anything to anybody else, are we? I mean, my, my father died, one of his oldest friends, I went to talk to him and he didn't say anything about, I'm sorry for your loss, your dad is a lovely man, any of that. All he said was, well, that day that you're having the funeral on, it'd be terrible to park. It'd be really difficult to park on the high street. So I suggest you think of a different day for the funeral. And that was all he said. And this sort of experience was replicated so many times that my mum and I actually thought, have we somehow entered a kind of parallel universe in which everyone has suddenly become very inadequate? Carrie, what do you make of this point that Fiona makes in her piece that we're perhaps not very good at dealing with grief in private or when we actually meet someone, but online, you know, we emote and we use all sorts of emojis and comment on all sorts of posts. Uh, do, what do you make of that discrepancy between our two approaches to grief? Oh, <laughs> it, it's hard to break down because I think it's about, it's as ever, it's context. I think, you know, people may emote online, but often it's from a distance of someone perhaps they didn't know. When we see these instances of a celebrity dying that people feel very attached to and it's a way for them to express their emotion or you know, if anybody in the public eye dies and you suddenly see people being emotional who perhaps normally wouldn't be. It's the distance that is allowing them to, to, as Fiona said, you know, be emotionally literate about that person. I think what is very difficult to do in our society is to face someone, IRL, in real life, and see them and see, as Fiona said, that they might be upset, they might be vulnerable. And what we are really afraid of is if we say something and that person starts crying, we will be at fault. And what we need to get in our heads is, the worst thing has happened. Someone died. So therefore, you saying something slightly awkward or a bit out of turn actually really is quite small in the list of things that have happened that are awful. You know, you saying, oh, oh, I I don't quite know what to say. And then that person starts crying. They're not crying because you said something wrong. They're crying because the person they love died. And we just need to allow people to be sad about death. But we just want to pack it all up, put it in a box. And when we see someone whose eyes are filling with tears or their hands are shaking a little bit, we panic and we think, well, I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to upset them. I don't want to be part of that emotional vulnerability. If we can and I'm a big fan of therapy chat, of, um, as Fiona said, allow them to just sit sit in it, sit in it when it's a bit sad and not try and fix it or tell them it's going to be okay or chin up, pull yourself together. Oh, you know, they had a good long life. Everything will be all right. I'm sure they wouldn't want to live very long. Like all these stupid things we say, just say to someone, God, that sounds awful. <laughs> that sounds terrible. And it's this idea, I agree exactly with what Carrie Ads just said. And, and it's this idea if we mention 
my my mum and I were sort of thinking if our friends seem to think if they mention the fact that my father her husband died four days ago if they mention it we'll start crying but if they don't mention it we'll somehow have forgotten about it and just be thinking about what to do, what to make for dinner it says it's a terrible it's it, I call it the conspiracy of silence because I think we like to paper over our own emotional inadequacy by persuading ourselves that it's best not to mention it we don't want to upset them and that's they're just easy excuses we're not confronting the difficult the difficulty of the situation however i will just say in people's defence i was 39 when my father died so it's that sort of tipping point age some of my friends had lost parents some hadn't and for those who didn't who hadn't lost experienced loss so far, I did feel like some terrible harpinger of doom, of the sorrow that they were going to have to confront themselves in years to come. And I, I slightly felt as though I was clubbing baby seals. It felt almost unfair to inflict this on people. But I know, Carrie, you, your well, father died when you were much younger. Yeah, I was 15. So, like, I'm real fun. <laughs> and people are like, people are like and, oh, how old are you? And I'm like, 15. You can see them being like, oh, my God. And, you know, they're worrying about getting into their 30s and worrying about their parents. And you think, well, I, yeah, as we say on my show, Griefcast, like, I just joined the club very young. And, and some people do. And I felt like that all my life, you know, of being this sort of harbinger of truth of like yeah people die and your parents are going to die and it will be sad and I, I can't lie to you I can't pretend that's not going to happen but some people obviously I think if you get to a ripe old age and you haven't experienced a loss whether that's parents or you know you know someone significant to you it can be very frightening and of course you don't know what to say which is why there's no harm in saying I don't know what to say yes and I think the other thing that that we all forget is that grief is a long trudge and it's not a linear trudge. So this idea that somehow one is allowed to grieve for, I don't know, a month or, and then it's all fine. I remember, again, when my father died, I was speaking, I was sitting, I, I came across a colleague, I was sitting next to her and she said, how are you? And I said, oh, I'm a bit miserable. And it's about three months after he died. And she said, why? And I said, well, my father died. She went, oh, you're still upset about that. I mean, what's all that about? Sorry, is there a statute of limitations? I think it's very easy to forget that grief is a long, hard, complex, non-linear path. Um, what people don't want to know is that grief doesn't go away. Yes. <laughs> it's lifelong. You carry it forever. If you love someone very dearly and they were close to you and they died, you don't forget them. You don't feel fine that they died. You learn to live with it. You don't cry every day. Your life builds around it, but it will always be with you. And if you are not in the club and if you haven't experienced it, you would like to believe that's not true. <laughs> you would like to think, oh, when that happens... When that happens to me, I'll be fine after three months. I wouldn't feel sad because you don't want to think, well, you still will be. And I'm, you know, so I'm 20 plus years into talking about my dad. And some people look at me like, oh, God, is that what it's going to be like? <laughs> oh, no. And you think, well, no, maybe not for you. But it, it isn't, you know, the analogy I always say is like when someone has a child, if they were talking to you about their child and you said, how old are they? They said, they're 10. Well, you're still talking about them. They're 10. It's... They still live with you. Why are they living with you? Like, we know, we understand that relationship is important and, and develops and you still care about them. And just because someone dies doesn't mean that after a year, or, I mean, three months is no time at all. I honestly think the first five years of grief are complete, you know, the bomb explosion you deal with. So if you yes. know anybody who's lost someone, the first five years are going to be tough for them. Like, that's yes. just a fact. And I like the way you say in it's the club. And I, I think I thought, I think 
grief, sadly, it is a bit of a pay it forward experience. Mm. I think it's what one can take, hopefully, a very good punt that if one hasn't experienced it and someone has, that it's, it's rubbish and awful and it's about being there. But I do think knowing about the, the contours of this strange new landscape, it is a pay it forward thing. And I think it's only when you have suffered it as you say, someone close to you, that you're actually better able to respond when you hear of someone who has suffered their own loss. Thank you, Carriot and Fiona. And that's it for this week. Pick up the issue to read all the pieces discussed, as well as Matt Ridley on Britain's gradual liberation from COVID restrictions, Hugh Edwards' diary, and Alice Healy on waltzing with the Duke of Edinburgh. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week. Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin.